this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Listeners, this is Brent Sutton. Welcome to the 77th episode of the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. Today's show is rather special because I get to uh, talk to someone who I um, admire quite a bit, and that's um, Rob Fisher from Fisher Technologies. When I started my Hop and Learning Teams journey um, a fair while ago now, um, there were really three people that resonated with me as um, being what I would term that are probably like the fathers of, of Hop, and that was Todd Conklin, Rob Fisher, and Sam Bush. And I've got, I've been very lucky so far, I've got to meet both Todd and Shane in person, but sadly I've only got to um, speak to, uh, to Rob um, in a virtual world. But last month, Rob published his new book, and that new book was entitled Understanding Mental Models, uh, Applying Practical Performance Mode. And this is Rob's first book, which really surprised me because I thought by now he would have um, done at least five or six of these types of books, but this is his first one. And Rob wrote this book because it's about helping people reduce the probability that they could either make a mistake, especially one that could be catastrophic. The book comes from a place of caring about people and sharing what has been proven to work for over three decades. The concepts and practical applications in this book will give those of you who have never heard or used the term mental models a great start to understanding human success and human failure. Rob's also coming down to Australia. Rob is going to be in Perth on Monday, the October the 3rd, and he's organising a open get-together for people that want to learn more about this type of work at Perth at the Holiday Inn. And that's Monday the 3rd of October, starting at 8 a.m. In the show notes, I'll provide the contact details. Uh, for Peter Firth, please sit back and enjoy this pod with Rob Fisher. And please enjoy his book. I certainly did. Rob, welcome back to the pod. It's good to see you. It's, it's been such a long time. It's great to be back. It has been. You know, everybody else is videoing and Zooming each other all over the world, and we've only gotten to do it a couple of times. I know, I know. But look, I'm I'm, I'm pleased to have you back on the show, and really for two reasons. One is to talk about your new book, which it's been a great read from my perspective. And secondly, you're coming down to Australia in October. Right. Are you going? We call it going free range. You've finally been released. <laughs> from your COVID cave and you're out in the free range. I'm I'm afraid. I'm very afraid. <laughs> well, and it's good to see that as as we spoke earlier that you're flying with the national airline of New Zealand. So of course. Um, I felt like that, there would be some homage to you guys. Absolutely. And and the good news is the dreamliners they fly have got the best viral filters of any plane. So <laughs> you're yeah. you're in a great environment. Perfect. <laughs> So listeners, uh, we're here with Rob today, and we're talking about his new book called Understanding Mental Models. And um, just off here, I showed Rob the fact that I actually have the book, because I imagine there's a few shows you attend, they talk about the book, 
but they've never read it themselves. <laughs> and, and and I think, and, and for the listeners at, at the intro, I'll, I'll, I'll take a couple of paragraphs out of page four and five about your inspiration. And, you know, I, I think the one line that I think to me was quite compelling is that you use the words, unfortunately, too many of those experiences were written in the blood of our co co-workers and friends. Right. And that's just so true, isn't it? That we still continue to learn from misery. It, it is. And I, I think probably I've spent my life post the early part of that book trying to figure that out, trying to figure out why, you know, why it takes us misery, um, both personal and with our peers and colleagues and friends and family for us to make change, for us to do something about things. Um, and, you know, in my case, it was learning that I really shouldn't have been blaming the doctors for my mother's death all of that time. Uh, all of that time, there, you know, for years, there was nothing I was learning from the fact that I was blaming someone. So this whole, I mean, it's easy to say blame fixes nothing, but we actually have to learn to push our pause button and and treat blame like it is a human nature characteristic instead of a cultural problem and once we do that it can we can actually manage it but i think that 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 piece about learning uh you know it being written in the blood of our colleagues is is something that sometimes we forget i i agree and and I, we used to we used to we had the conversation that we are human and when we encounter things, um, we will respond emotionally. And and I think there's a difference between that inner voice and that outer voice. Or or, or whether we respond as a parent or versus responding as a child. Right. Um, and we, so, we actually call it the difference between a reaction and a response. Yeah. So you can, you know, instinctively we humans will react in some pretty predictable ways. But if we can take a breath and, like I said, push that pause button and turn that reaction into a response, that changes the game. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it, it's that, it's a, oh, I suppose, it's a con conscious effort to try and do that. Because so, um, blame, blame feels so good sometimes. It does. Do it it lot, feels good, it feels good. For, for, for a long time because we think the alternative is bad. Yeah. But that that you know that instinctive response going into some, some more recent work is really uh that system one response is instinctive, and the mm -hmm. system two response is responsive or the reaction system one and the response system two. You have to do something physical to move things from system one or things that are instinctive uh, or without thought to system two, things that are conscious. You have to do something. It doesn't happen automatically. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I also read your compelling post this morning about your dad and him reading the book. So that, that was so lovely. That was so delightful. <laughs> There's a little bit of an unfortunate story behind it. He picked up the yeah. book. He doesn't see very well, and he can only see out of one eye. So he right. picked up the book after I sent him, and he he read the, you know, what I'd written personally to him in the 
in the cover and oh son that's just so sweet and he he was so sweet he cried you know and then and then a couple of weeks go by and i i asked him how'd you like he said well son it, it's just too technical for me and uh, <laughs> it's just too yeah. technical for us so I, I haven't really i said well what'd you think about the intro since it's partly about you he says oh 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 <laughs> so i was with him this weekend and uh and then he went home and, and immediately read that and he got pretty emotional about it. So right. I, I just thought that was uh, pretty cool that he, you know, because it was his wife that died. Yes. Right. My, my mother. Yeah. I knew all this time that he was going through what I was going through, but from a very different perspective. Yeah. And, and uh, um, it just, it, it, it was really sweet of him to, to text me that I, I just I'll, I'll cherish that forever no that was that was good and look and thank you for sharing that with the community because that was that was very heartfelt so um what what were some of the key things behind the book because books aren't easy to write this is the, i think this is the first thing isn't it it's not easy things yeah um you know i was writing a book on human performance in hop and and Todd Conklin and I had a conversation about three years ago. He said, what you really need to do is stop that one and write the one on performance modes. And the reason is because people are teaching them wrong. They're not paying any attention to the myths. You guys are really the only ones out there that teach it in a way that make performance modes something useful mm -hmm. uh, for people at all levels of an organization. That's the book you need to write. So I shifted gears a little over three years ago and and started really writing it first part of the pandemic. And then I sent it out to a couple of folks uh, and they said, yeah, nah, this is, uh, you know, this reads like a textbook and that's that's not you. Right. So I actually took a course on book writing. <laughs> and as the course would tell me what I should do, I tried to do that. And I sent the book back out to a couple of people. They said, yeah, you're you tell stories. It's mm -hmm. important that the stories convey what you want. And I wanted the book to be a reflection of me. So one of the biggest compliments I've had uh, since the book, since I published the book, was a, a good friend and colleague who runs the Center of Visual Expertise uh, uh, about visual literacy. He said, I would sit there and I could hear your voice saying these things. Yeah. And I thought, gosh, you know, that that seems pretty powerful. Um, and what a great compliment that it was written in, in a more, I try to write it in a conversational tone. I don't know if it came across, but that's no, what I was it, trying to it, do. It, it did. My, my colleague, Glynis McCarthy, would, would say that if a person can read a book and see themselves in it, they'll take great value from it. Wow. And, and I think that you've demonstrated that. And, and I think Todd does the same thing. Because it's through the power of conversation that people get that underlying narrative, that underlying text. And, and that's where they take the meaning from. This is a, a textbook or a science book. And there's a number of authors in our space that write in that style. Right. And, you know, you have to put it down. You have to come back to it. You have to put it down. You have to come back to it. Whereas examples of your book, you're able to pick it up and, and you're in it and you enjoy it and you don't want to put it down. Well, thank you. Yeah. Wow. 
So that, yeah, that's where we're going. Yeah. And, and also, I think you got the right sweet spot as well in terms of the size of the book. I didn't. I didn't want it to be overpowering, and I wanted it to stay on topic. I didn't want to venture out into the other parts of the space. I wanted to think yeah. about, you know, the way I want people to think about the way their brain works to be either uh, successful or not or unsuccessful, and 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 what role it plays, and what you can do about it. The other thing is we've we've got so many stories from over the years that never make it out beyond individual conversations with people. And I wanted those stories that I felt were powerful. There's a ton that didn't make it into the book. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted those stories that I thought were powerful to to be out there in the in the population as opposed to just, you know, running around uh, some of our consultants knowing it and being able to being able to share one here or there. That's great. And um, uh, did Todd also say to you that you've got to write at least three books? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what's number two going to be about? Well, <laughs> still, I'm still working on it. I, I, I hope we'll, we'll do some collaboration. Um, because oh, be I, I love the principles of hop and, you know, we've been practically applying those principles for a long, long time. Yeah. So that next part of a series may be, all right, so what, how do you do this? And, and yes. what do you actually do to make it happen? Yeah, um, absolutely. So well, look, I, I, I think that'll surely be part of the next one. And I have a saying, there are the three wise men of hop. And it's Rob Fisher, <laughs> Todd Conklin, and Shane Bott. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> because all of you have been living and breathing this for, for such a long time. And, you know, when people talk about the down here, they use the language, the new view of safety. And I'm thinking, boy, I, I remind people uh, to go back and read the text from the DOE handbooks, right. volume one and volume two. I mean, you know, seriously, you know, it's like, look at history. Right. This, this is an evolution. This is an evolution. This is not a revolution, if that makes sense. Right. But, uh, but people want to treat it like it's a revolution because the, so uh, if you don't mind, I will sure. I'll send you the, I, I gave a speech at the community of human organizational learning. And I, I have that speech tucked away at a YouTube channel. I think you'd really like it because it talks about um, explorers, pioneers, settlers, and residents. Yeah. And, and, and how that plays. And, and it's a, the the title of the talk was my how far we've come mm -hmm. and in part of it i said you know we have made this a passion not a program we told you for years don't create a new program we didn't expect that it would be this much of a passion for people mm -hmm. well uh, certainly for me it's been um it's been life-changing for me because uh you know, we call them learning teams. You call them learning improvement um, teams. Uh, you know, when you get a group of people and regardless of the reason why they're there, when they say to you, why can't we do more of this stuff? So when the frontline people who face that risk every day say to you, why can't we do more of this stuff? That is compelling. And it is. 
I've never seen that in any other systemized approach around right. safety. And I think the reason we're still going 30 years later is because that has been continuous feedback since yeah. we started this 30 years ago. You know, that if you give if you give the people something they need instead of something you want them to have, yeah, and and they use it because it works for them, that's the right thing to do. And and I think that many people miss the boat because they give people things they want them to have. I want you to have this procedure. I want you to do this this way instead of what they need to be successful. And if you give them what they need to be successful, they'll use it at home, at work, and at play. If they use it at home and at play, they'll use it at work. It's a, it's uh, a absolutely. great and, cycle. And I remember we, we did a podcast with Chevron, and the Chevron team were, were talking to me about how a number of their workers had come to them and thanked them about how that hop journey had changed their lives at home. Because exactly. this notion of being curious <laughs> had, had, you know, had such an effect on their own personal life. So, so I think that's really important, um, you know, for, for for our listeners, the fact that um, this this notion of what we are all trying to do is simply about having those better conversations, providing you know better context. Um, you know, people people will change if they want to change. Well, and that's no different than if you want somebody to um, use a new paradigm, you got to give them a paradigm more powerful than the one you're asking them to leave. That's yes. our job. Our yeah. job is to create that new paradigm that is more powerful than the one you're asking them to leave. And it doesn't matter whether it's about blame or about learning teams or about personality diversity or, or any of the things that we uh, use to improve uh, the way people can work and the way people can live, then we, we're the ones that have to frame it in a way that make people want to change. Yeah. Because if they don't want to, they're not going to. Certainly no, won't I, do it sustainably. I, I agree. One of the things I've just been thinking about recently, um, Rob, is that um, – Many countries around the world at the moment um, are struggling with getting enough resource, getting enough human power. For some right. reason, the pandemic has created this. Um, we call it the Great Resignation, or the you know lots of yeah. shifting tides. And right. you know that the pandemic proved just how brittle systems were. But but more importantly, um, as we're now having to recruit people without the same types of prerequisites or the same types of skills or knowledge that we recruited before. And of course, our systems aren't capable of adjusting to that level. No, and, and people aren't thinking about it. I had a group of leaders in here uh, a few weeks ago and we were talking about that. And I said, well, you know, do you ask a, if you're bringing in a mechanic or 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 a maintainer. Um, do you ask them if they've ever fixed their bicycle or their car? And they said, "Well, no. Why? Why would we do that?" I said, "Because there was an assumption when we were young mm -hmm. that you did those things." Yep. That assumption's not valid anymore. So if they haven't done that, 
shouldn't that change how they get trained? Because it's not about this, mm -hmm. not about thumb dexterity and thumb eye, you know, dexterity. It's about dexterity around moving equipment and heavy equipment and things yeah. that rotate. And, you know, the stuff that we learned what we called the hard way, you know, <laughs> but by the time we got into the workforce, we knew how those things worked. We knew about tolerances. And a, a lot of the training systems in these organizations are built up around that, but don't take into account that the people coming in, it not, it's not against the people. It's no. against the system that wants those folks to be able to go out and do good at something. Yeah. So, so, so what we sort of been looking at is the fact that the absence of the system. So, so we call it we're hiring people with a pulse. Okay. So, so before you'd, you'd have to fit a criteria. Now, now if you got a pulse, you can get the job. Okay. And the system hasn't changed. The system's still doing the same things it always did. But what's become very apparent is the fact that the informal system, the system that exists within that work team, that then comes to light because that's right. the only place where that person is able to take on how we do things around here or right. how they gain those skills or, or I, I sometimes I call it like the dance. Like you see these work groups and there's very little communication going on but they're all, you can see that there's interdependencies amongst them or codependencies amongst that work group. And they just function. It's like a dance. Right. That didn't come from training. Right. <laughs> that, that came from lots of doing. Right. And, and those inter things that exist between those teams and systems just don't do that well. And so with this same leadership team, I said, as you're out there doing your values-based engagements, go out and listen to a couple of morning meetings and listen for the term, here's how we're going to do that. Yeah. Because what they're telling you is there's going to be a mismatch between mm -hmm. work is imagined and work is done. Yeah. They're not trying to deviate or violate your procedures. What they're telling you is we've done this enough that we know what it takes and they will interpret that written guidance to that end. They're not oh, trying absolutely. to or, or the fact is that that job would normally take a team of five. Only three have turned up today. Right. So do, do we stop, re rewrite the system, recreate all the checklists, or right. the language that we use, or do we simply make do? and have a conversation amongst ourselves how we intend to make do. And then how, course, do, how do we how do we get the, the workforce to feed that back to us without the fear that there's going to be repercussions that they did something that the system was never designed to do anyway? Uh, look, absolutely. Or, or how do we even know if that workforce was coping with that shortage? Because in some recent work, um, by sort of understanding that emotional sentiment of that work team, we, we were able to see that some groups were coping and some groups weren't. Right. Now, interesting, the organisation said, well, why aren't they coping? And I said, no, no, let's turn it around the other way. Let's go out and find the groups that are coping 
and share their stories of how they cope because they've worked out an informal system that sounds like it's successful. So it's interesting that you would say, let's turn it around and just say, why are they coping? Yeah. I would also ask, why do they have to? And that that actually puts it back on. So, it, it, you know, a lot of the, the tools that people use is to say, well, someone someone didn't use this tool. They didn't use right. pre-job brief, right? Or they didn't use that tool, right? I tell leaders the immediate question they ought to ask is, why were they put in a position that the tool was going to save our ass? Or but yeah. I got to move yeah. and say the other thing. Yeah, I you can fine. say that. No, that's all good. That's already, I've had much worse. And, um, and then the leaders kind of cock their head and say, mm, yeah, um, that is a turnaround. You know, why Why did we get to the final barrier? Yes. It's a this, better this, question than why did they not use the tool? And, and I think this frequency of having to make do is, has increased because we've moved from what we call just in time to just in case. That yeah. all, all our systems, we build our systems on efficiency and we tried to remove as much fat out of the system as we could because we call that efficiency. Right. Well, all those underpinning things have changed as a result of this. And, and by the way, the same thing, you look at every world war that happened, same thing. If we look at, at Deming's work, for instance, the Marshall Plan in Japan at the end of the war, the Japanese said, we need to rebuild our economy with what we have, not what right. we want. Yeah. <laughs> and there was the beginning of Ling. <laughs> and we've also trans done some transference that efficiency equals productivity and productivity equals profitability. And therefore, efficiency equals profitability. But that's yeah. like saying the cheese has holes in it. Uh, the more the more holes, the less cheese. Therefore, more cheese equals less cheese. It's not. You can't use a circular logic that way. No. And, and I think we also did a real disservice during the pandemic um, by <laughs> we talked about diversity and inclusion. And then we started calling people essential and non-essential workers. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so here we here we sit. Two years later, things have opened up a little bit. Now your people that really had to stay home busted their humps, but were called non-essential for two years. Yeah. You know, and and the people that were out there doing hard work in the field were called essential. Mm -hmm. There's, I think there, I think that. Uh, that wedge is going to last a lot longer than round one of the pandemic. Uh, look, I know, I, I, I agree. It's generational because it's going to be remembered. Um, right. As, as, as well. Look, it's no different. Uh, it's the same argument. Those that saw active service right. versus that didn't. Um, those that didn't see active service were the ones that kept the economies going. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. So well, yeah. I mean, the, the service industry that that pivoted so that we could get food delivered to our houses and yes. still meet all the rules of the pandemic, you know, that 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 service kept us alive. Yeah. And I guarantee you they weren't being paid extra money for that. No. No. 
no. So, so I think, so we're definitely seeing that in things like healthcare, the healthcare industry, um, and the education industry. Uh, you know, we've got the what we call the what's called the Great Resignation, where basically, you know, a third of the workforce are moving on. Right. Um, yeah, and and that I, I think a lot of things that you've talked about us the, these things that are happening now is, is simply a well because we we didn't have time to think about it, but it was probably an unintended consequence. Right. Of, you know, introducing. As we all know, um, you know, humans don't do uncertainty very well. <laughs> right. But there's always an unintended consequence that when we introduce certainty. So all these right. rules that governments brought in to try and create this containment and multiple layers of protection, all these things, we're going to have unintended consequences. Right. It's just the reality. Well, and- and a, a, just a bit of a circle back to the book. One of the things that I talk about is being in knowledge-based performance error mode yep. and how what what the probabilities are around that. Just about everything we did was being done with that error rate of 10 to 50 percent mm-hmm. for almost two years. Yep. And but we were treating it like we we're in rule-based. So this is this is the science. This is sound. This is the way it has to be. And two weeks later, say, well, it wasn't exactly the way it had to be. We we didn't know, but we were pretty sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, Rob, tell us about you. You're coming to Australia in October. Tell, tell us about your Australian trip. Let's see if we can get I some am. more I people to, to meet Perth. up with you. Yeah, I get to Perth on October the uh, 2nd. I'll be there October 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th. And so if you know anybody in the Perth area, we're going to be having an open uh, meeting that uh, has some, we we won an RSVP on October 3rd at the Holiday Inn in Perth. So I'll send you the the information on who to contact. But if you'd like to come to that, we're just going to be talking about um, what we've learned about the human performance and human factors and human element, all the whatever you want to call it this week, um, what we've learned about those principles and, and and how to deploy it. We're doing a couple hour meeting there that's kind of open. And if somebody wants some of my time, they can certainly get a hold of me um, and, and you can provide them uh, my email. Absolutely. And then we're going to go over to Melbourne and we're going to, Viva Energy uh, has been deploying our uh, advanced air reduction organization for several years now. And it's, very big in what they do in, in reducing probability and mitigating consequences. Um, they're hosting an event in Geelong. Uh, that's going to be on that Friday. I believe it's October 7th. Um, and then, and then we'll be in the Melbourne area um, for the rest of the time until the 12th. So the 7th through or 8th through the 12th, we'll be in the Melbourne area. And again, I'd love to uh, meet, talk to anybody that you, anybody that is down under and would like to do that. That's great. And of course, um, uh, Melbourne is beautiful in the springtime, as they say. So you, you're going there in the right time of year. So nice warm days and nice cool nights. So, so it should be good. I, I look forward to that. I love, I love Melbourne. I love Perth. Um, you know, Australia is kind of my second country. I just yeah. love the people down there. 
we've been doing business down there for almost 20 years um, and just have some great success stories down there in Australia. And so I love getting down there as often as I can. I'm a lot older now. It's a little bit harder <laughs> of a trip. But uh, when it came up that there was a possibility I could come down and say, well, I'll, I'll do that. I'll go down there absolutely. Absolutely. And look, I mean, I, I think, and we spoke off here, but um, love to try and get you across to New Zealand and try and host some type of event because, you know, uh, the community is growing and, you know, I think the more that people hear of people like yourselves and, and Todd and Shane about these foundations and where they've come from and the fact that this, all the stuff has been working for quite some time. That, yeah. that really, because, because at the end of the day, I, I think like everything else, um, it's sustainability that matters. Right. So how do we make all these things a sustainable practice? Yeah, and when we when we um, teach a company to do this well, we tell them there's three phases. There's education, people need to learn new things. There's integration, you need to roll those things into your day-to-day -day work so that it is sustainable. This is how we do our business. So then it doesn't matter if the CEO changes and says, you know, I want to go this other direction. They're never going to be able to pull it out of all the places that it was put to get the sustainability. People can get the book on Amazon. Um, it's it's available now. And and I, I just appreciate people reading it. And, and I really hope that they're a little bit entertained, but they get a lot of good information that they can use out of it. They definitely will. And for our listeners, um, it's also available on Amazon Australia. That's amazon.com.au. Thank you, listeners, for being part of this podcast. We'd love to hear your learnings from today or other topics you would like us to support you on. Go to www podcastlearnings.com and be part of the community practice of learning teams at www.learningteamscommunity.com The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.